What's up, everybody? This is Dr. Andy Wilczek, and this is another episode of Untenured Tracks. This week, we're talking to Dr. Carolyn Moore. Dr. Moore is a program director and assistant professor of music therapy at Sam Houston State University. Enjoy the show. start by you talking a little bit about what music therapy is in general okay okay so music therapy is one of those things that every time I get asked to describe what it is I pause because it's no to me no description can really do it justice but essentially um, music therapy is a an allied health profession so along the lines of of PT or OT or speech-language pathology or even um, talk therapy But our primary medium or the way that we interact with our clients is through uh, music interventions. And uh, music therapists um, work with people from all ages, from premature infants, um, all the way up to older adults at the end of their life and every age group in between, uh, any kind of educational or healthcare, community, mental health, forensic, um, nursing, medical facility you can think of. And... um, so our relationship with our clients and everything we do when we interact with them is really musical in nature. Um, and that is, you know, what makes us unique is that we might be working on goals similar to a talk therapist or a physical therapist, but we're really using and working through the music to help achieve those, um, those goals to help um, our clients improve their lives. Okay. <laughs> So there's a lot in there, right? So, Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not even sure where to start. Like, so what is a, and you probably can't even answer this because I'm guessing from the sound of it, there's probably nothing like a typical, like a typical session, right? No, I mean, for me, I've worked with all different clients. We call our people we work with clients and some of the sessions are very structured. Like when I work with um, children on the autism spectrum, I might mm-hmm. be very structured with them. Um, so there might be a very clear start and ending, and we might do a lot of similar things every session. But then I might work, like, for example, I do some work in one of the local prisons mm-hmm. with adolescent males, and that those sessions are very open-ended because these guys, everything in their life is dictated to them. From when they eat, when they shower, when they go to school, they have no choice. So in the sessions, I want them to have as many choices as possible. So in that yeah. case, I'm um, more of a facilitator than and being less directive. Yeah. Okay. So let's focus on that then, because that's where our our expertise yeah. overlaps. Okay. Um, so yeah. what does that look like, music therapy in prison? So um, I'll give you a little bit of background because this is actually my first time working in a prison. Okay. Um, I used to work at a forensic psychiatric hospital, so all of my clients had a severe persistent mental illness. 
they were either found not guilty by reason of insanity or they were incompetent to stand trial and they were there for remediation of that. Um, but when I went to the prison here in Huntsville, I had no idea what to expect. And uh, so this is a partnership with uh, a school district in Texas, and all they do is educational programming in the prisons. So I, I got into the prisons, that was my in through the school district, and okay. they spent a lot of money on instruments. I mean, thousands of dollars. They knew that this, they really needed buy-in from mm -hmm. the inmates um, to make this successful. So we go in and we set up electronic drum sets, synthesizers, we have a DJ station, um, we have guitars and basses and amps. And so when they come in, when our group comes in, we always start with some kind of, before we even say our names, we do some kind of musical introduction. So my group likes to kind of do a play a rhythm, everyone play it back with body percussion. And so we usually go around and do that for a while. Um, and that's, you know, some of them don't take it that seriously and maybe they'll clap once or twice, but some of them take it pretty seriously. And then we just get straight to the music. So um, with these guys, I'm doing a lot of informal teaching, but also mm -hmm. helping them figure out how to use the electronic equipment. So we're doing a lot of beat making, songwriting, uh, freestyling, and then um, some of them really want to learn how to play instruments. So a mm -hmm. lot of it is just teaching them the basics, but the goal is not necessarily for them to become great musicians, but the attention it takes, the coordination, the feeling of satisfaction when you learn a new skill, mm -hmm. um, that's really what we're focusing on. But this session is very free. So, Okay. So does the therapy come through, like, they're, they're expressing themselves through the music that they're playing, and then that provides an opportunity to talk about stuff? Or am I completely off base? Yeah, so... so for me, um, sometimes in the group, the therapeutic work happens in the music itself. Like I've mm -hmm. seen, there was a young man I worked with, he has moved on to general population, he aged out, who completely transformed in just a few days. Um, so you could see that actually making music was where the therapeutic work was happening for him. Mm -hmm. But some of these um, young men have, through the process of sitting with me and just me teaching them something or helping them learn a particular skill, they start to open up about their story, what brought them to prison, and um, just talking through that with them and and kind of just listening and um, recognizing their story and the humanity of their story. Mm -hmm. That's where the work is really happening for them. So it just kind of depends. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that sounds like stuff that I've seen before there's a documentary I show in in one of my classes called Girls on the Wall, and it's about a um, a girls facility, a juvenile facility, um, where and I, I can't remember if it's like a sponsored program. It must be like a, a sponsored program, but they come in um, and they help the girls write a musical. Um, they write and perform a musical, and so the girls have to write all the songs. Um, they audition for the different parts and then perform in front of their their families and so since it's a i mean some of the girls are in there for some really okay. like serious stuff right so it it gets dark pretty quickly and then they're performing like this music that they wrote about you know my father abandoned me because he okay. was on drugs in front of father who's now clean um, right. and it always like resonates like really intensely with my students um yeah. 
because I, I feel like they could use that same opportunity, you know? Oh yeah. And I think, um, that trauma piece is really important because regardless of what brought those young women or these young men to prison, there's almost always a trauma related issue in their life, whether Mm -hmm. it's drugs or abandonment or abuse. And, you know, that's part of their story that might be neglected by the system. Um, because I mean, they're all seen as numbers. They're all seen as inmates. It doesn't matter what brought them there to Mm -hmm. the prison. They're just there. So, um, yeah, I think and the creative arts, not just music, art, theater, poetry, anything that that these young people or any inmates for that matter can get their hands on, I think um, can really do a lot of good. So very cool. So can I ask, how did you get into this? Like, were you a therapist <laughs> first and then got yeah. drawn into the music or a musician first? And then, uh, yeah, so uh, my aunt, uh, Penny Dashinger, was an art therapist um, and she worked with uh, adults with really severe, profound, what they used to call mental retardation. Now we would never call it that, but she really worked with people who did not use speech to communicate, um, mm-hmm. really were abandoned in institutions. And so I grew up knowing about her. She died when I was quite young, but I grew up as a musician in a musical family. And like all of my students have the same exact story about how they got to music therapy as I do, as I thought I invented it. I said, I'm going to study psychology. I'm going to study music. I'll put it together. <laughs> And then I found out it was a real major. So, so I would say, yes, I started as a musician for sure. Um, my dad's a pianist. I took flute lessons um, and was really good at flute. And then um, when you go to school, when you were a bachelor's level, bachelor's entry uh, profession, you really study all the same music classes any music student would. So music mm-hmm. theory and ear training and music history. And then you have the therapy classes on top of that. So definitely I was a musician first, but as a professional, I've always been a music therapist. I've not um, been a professional performer or anything like that. Okay. Yeah. Um, no, that's, that's interesting. Um, so like, what's some stuff that you're working on now that you're excited about? Oh, well, the prison stuff I'm definitely excited about because um, Huntsville, uh, Texas, is known as Prison City, and it's really hard to get to the prisons here. So just to be able to get in was really yeah. neat. But uh, from a research standpoint, I kind of have two major things going on. One is um, student focus, so helping professions in general. But um, in music therapy, as my expertise, I'm, we see a lot of burnout. Uh, compassion fatigue problems with self-care so my colleague at Colorado State University Dr. Lindsay Wilhelm and I are doing some research together looking at music therapy student self-care or lack thereof as we're finding um, kind of seeing what's going on with the hope that we might be able to develop some curricular innovation to help foster good self-care skills early on so that when students get into the profession, they don't burn out. They have some skills to address compassion fatigue and can effectively work with their clients. So we're having a lot of fun with that research. And then um, I'm also finishing up some grant research uh, looking at music therapy with children with ADHD. Mm -hmm. And I picked that uh, population because when I was a grad student at University of Miami, I had a bunch of clients I was working with with ADHD, and I couldn't find any research about music therapy with them. So I decided yeah. I was going to create the research. Um, and so I'm really interested in executive functioning, specifically those higher-level cognitive skills that um, mm-hmm. these children have a lot of trouble with. Um, 
But what I'm finding is that in music, a lot of their characteristics of ADHD that might be seen as a weakness in, say, a classroom are actually really strengths in music, like the creativity and that willingness to try anything new. And um, it's really organizing for them, and it's really regulating for them to have music. So and the parents are really happy with what they're seeing. So um, this is... Uh, grant research funded by my university, so I have to apply for another grant, you know, as a condition, so I'm hoping we'll be able to expand and yeah. work with even more families in the area, because, you know, rural Texas, there's not a lot of services for children with ADHD, so. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you didn't invent music therapy the field, <laughs> but you are breaking some ground here, so I think you should... <laughs> well, hype yourself up some. To me, so. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean... You gotta love it, right? Yeah, and I think, get up every um, day. I feel like I'm a problem solver by nature. So when I saw that problem, like I have no research to guide my intervention, mm-hmm. I started pulling from um, other fields and found some strategies that I thought worked pretty uh-huh. well. So, uh, but I'm hoping that you know other music therapists won't be in the same quandary i was because there'll be some research for them to fall back on so that's cool yeah um so i i like what you said about how you're finding that for some of the kids with adhd that their condition or whatever the proper language is um is like a a strength for them and not a weakness and it, it it strikes a chord with me because like i don't know i'm lucky enough that i have lots of students at my university like tell me about those problems that they have and so often it it comes out as like somebody else has told them that this is some like failure of theirs, right? right. That they have whatever sort of mental health or um, whatever kind of problem they have. And so this is this is a bad thing that needs to get yeah. fixed right away. And they I you know, I think this is a long rambling way of saying that like the academy's done a bad job like by our students. <laughs> By, oh, yeah. with with such a heavy focus on assessment that everything yes. has to have objections to uh, adu- objectives to it yeah. Freudian slip I guess objectives to <laughs> it um, that kids who have uh, you know a variety I guess the term I'm looking for is neurodiversity yes. would you know, are totally capable and brilliant in other ways but if it's not something that can be measured with like a multiple choice question, (laughs) then, then their grade, their grade deflates and then they're bounced out of academia and which is really unfair. I think my university, Sam Houston state university, I think does a really good job of second chances. Um, Mm -hmm. we have a really high population. First of all, um, students who are first generation college students. So they're already coming in without, people to talk to about how do I succeed in college. And then we're definitely seeing mental health issues. Um, the, the counseling center on campus says fine art students use their services more than anyone on campus, which doesn't surprise me. And then, yeah, we're seeing really diverse learners. And um, one of the things I love about being a music therapy professor is I get to teach from freshmen, the same freshmen till they turn sophomore. So I see them the whole way through and being a gatekeeper to a profession, you know, I can really see the whole trajectory. And some of our students who struggled the most 
are succeeding the most now. And some mm-hmm. of the students who really we worried about and we, we really held their hand as much as we could are really thriving now because they were given a chance. And I think as a therapeutic discipline, it would be really hypocritical for me to say, I can help my clients and I can be patient with them and see strengths in them and then not give the same thing to the students. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so to kind of go back to what you were talking about with your students and their self-care or lack thereof, and then I've never heard this term compassion fatigue, but it mm-hmm. it reminds me, I hate to say it, like it reminds me of me a little bit by like April, May. Oh, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. Like I'm, I'm just mean, done. Yeah. <laughs> I'm done. I want to go. Um, yeah. So how are you seeing that um, like manifest itself in your students? Because, and I ask because like, it seems like they would be really new in the profession, right? Like, yeah. when am I wrong to think that compassion fatigue would be something that would only strike yeah. somebody who's been around for like 20 years and has just seen it all and well, doesn't? Uh, compassion fatigue, the, as, as I understand it, it's a phenomenon that really has to do when you're working with people and, you know, as a therapist, especially or a teacher. Uh, being empathetic and giving a lot of yourself emotionally to your clients or your students and their story can kind of become enmeshed with yours. So Mm -hmm. we see it a lot in our students who are working in mental health or working at hospice and around death a lot that the, their client stories their clients lives, some of the the sad parts of it or the really stressful parts of it just really take wear and tear on their, um, on their ability to kind of separate mm-hmm. their private and um, professional life. So in our students, well, what we found in our research that just recently came out was um, we, really, we looked at um, self-care and perceived stress. So what we found is um, a positive correlation between uh, self-care, frequency of self-care participation and, I'm sorry, negative correlate, or uh, yeah, so the more students reported um, participating in self-care, the, the lower their reported perceived stress was and vice versa. So um, music students especially, I'm sure you have, have had some of them in your class, their credit loads are astronomical. And so these the students are finding it difficult to find time to take care of themselves or they think that self-care is bubble baths and getting their nails done instead of like eating, taking a nap. <laughs> Um, calling their mom, paying the bill, right? So they have an idea that if I can't do this really luxurious thing, that I just shouldn't even bother. And uh-huh. um, so what we're trying to find out is now looking at some different, uh, some qualitative data is, so what are they actually doing for self-care? How do they define self-care? And is it similar to what professionals have said to be? Are we on the same page about what self-care is? And mm-hmm. so as far as activities, we haven't published this yet, but we're seeing a lot of um, activities like watching TV, watching Netflix, um, you know, YouTube videos, but also things like um, lots of activities involving other people. So spending time with friends. And so um, not so much physical activity, not so much eating well, not so much that kind of stuff. So we're just kind of curious what's going on. And then uh, we really want to talk to other faculty about what they're seeing so we can help these these students because, yeah, they, they shouldn't, well, in a perfect world, they shouldn't be burning out at all or so yeah. soon in their careers for sure. So, yeah, no, that's that's funny, like the well, funny in a sad way, I guess, the disconnect yeah. between what self-care actually is and how it 
how some of the students might think that it is or what it looks like. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of students who will say like, I had a bad day. So I stayed in bed for 15 hours and watched Netflix when I, yeah. when I hear that and it's like, that's not taking care of yourself. That's giving into yeah. your depression. And yeah, that's called pseudo self-care <laughs> where you're doing something to avoid, you know, like I will stay in bed to avoid doing something I don't want to do and say it's self-care, but it's really avoidance. Yeah. So, but yeah. You know, it's hard. And, and I think it's hard uh, because sometimes I don't practice what I preach. I'm oh, not yeah. a perfect person. So sometimes I, you know, I'll, tell my students, okay, remember how I told you you should do X, Y, and Z? Well, I didn't do that, and I really had a hard time last week. Like, I try to be upfront with them because I think they try to put us on this pedestal like we're perfect, and we're certainly not. So. Oh, yeah, no. Yeah, uh, I've had similar experiences. Um, when I when I started, um, I used to do this self-concept exercise in my Sociology 101 class where I would have them write down like 20 statements about themselves, right? Um, and there was a student in there. I'll never forget it. She wrote things like, I'm ugly, I'm stupid, I'm terrible. And she was 19. And I, I mean, it just broke my heart, yeah. right? Um, and so I realized that if I was going to survive at this job, then I had to be like, I had to embrace the power of positivity and mm-hmm. be this like over the top, like way overboard, which is not my yeah. my personality at all. Um you know, I was a '90s grunge kid. It's not in my right. yeah, <laughs> not my too. DNA to be happy about anything. Um, just to try to like get them there, and so then I found myself, you know, talking about tragedies in my own life and things yeah. I've had to overcome to try to get them to stop thinking of me as some like I don't know what what they think of me as, yeah. but as like a normal person. I want them to see me as a normal yeah. person. You know, and I think I think that. Um... Like in therapy, for example, sample self-disclosure is something we really struggle with. Like mm-hmm. how much do we tell our clients about our lives? And if we're going to tell them about our lives, are we doing it for a therapeutic purpose or are we doing it to satisfy some need? And I think in that case, it's really to, it's you're, you're doing it to humanize yourself a little bit and show them, hey, like we have similar um, universal experiences regardless of the age difference or education difference or whatever. Mm-hmm. Everyone goes through these universal experiences of stress or tragedy or trauma or whatever it is. So, yeah. Um, how often do you find yourself in, in your field teaching them or, or dealing with like resilience as a, as a skill? Yeah, I think it's kind of a unspoken thing that we're always kind of trying to help our students personally deal with because they're when something happens in their life like they don't pass their jury it's the end of the world to them and I understand I was there but just reinforcing that they can bounce back from whatever they want and that modeling resilience in their own lives um, helps them become more resilient and then also when they're working with their clients who've been through you know I'm thinking of one of our, I call her our most favorite graduate, most famous graduate from SAM, um, Megan Morrow, who is um, representative Gabby Gifford's music therapist at TIER. Like, that's an amazing story of resilience. And so for Megan to believe in her client and believe in the power of resilience, I mean, we none of us would be here as therapists if we didn't think that people could overcome or move past something horrible that happened in their life. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I asked that because it's something that's come up, like I've seen come up in circles that I work in yeah. as, 
um, I don't know. I don't know how I want to put this uh, as a skill that some students might be lacking in, I guess. Um, and and sort of finding themselves caught in this like feedback loop. I think of um, you know somebody says they have anxiety and then they're immediately comforted, but that comfort, like you said, might not actually be helpful. You know right. what I mean? And it might just actually be reinforcing bad behavior. Well, and I think that, um, like, I'm thinking when I was a teenager, I had really horrible anxiety, and I felt so relieved when I got a diagnosis because it made sense. Okay, all of this that's happening, you know, there's a clinical reason for it. I'm not alone. Mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, losing it. But also, it was scary for me because I thought, am I going to ever overcome this? Can I ever get better? And, um, so I think that the students have it. I think they just have to be reminded of their strengths sometimes. And again, we have a lot of students who might not have the family support or might be working 40 hours a week and going to school full time. They have a lot on their plates and sometimes it's really hard for them to remember, Hey, like you're holding it all together. Yeah. Um, and so I always try to praise as much as I can, but also be realistic with them. Like I have adjusted some of my syllabus policies to be a little bit, more open for late work um, and that kind of thing, because I want to see students succeed and I don't want them to just stop participating in class because they missed one or two assignments. So thanks to Twitter, I got some really good ideas about, you know, some realistic um, policies and that. But at the same time, I also want to push these students really hard because I want them to be amazing therapists and members of society and their clients are going to count on them to be there when they say they're going to be there and to be able to take care of themselves so they can be an effective client. So I try to be supportive, but also, you know, mm-hmm. a little strict at the same time. So, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm uh, shout out to the entirety of academic Twitter. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I had, um, I, used to only go on Twitter when I would go to music therapy conferences because there's just amazing <laughs> stuff on Twitter, yeah. um, lots of jokes. And then just earlier this year, I was like, you know, let me get back on Twitter and start communicating with people. And I just, well, just so much great information and camaraderie. And my yes. favorites are the accounts of like the mean TA or like the snarky <laughs> professor. And you have like no idea who they are, but they're, talking about things that you know all of us have gone through. So. But also lots of really good ideas just about um, accommodations in the classroom, realistic policies, decolonizing your syllabus. Yeah. I mean, these are people who are like doing lots of labor for free on Twitter, educating all of us on best practices that aren't in print yet. So. Oh, yeah. It's been incredible. I, I think I've learned more from Twitter than I did during yeah. during my Ph.D., <laughs> which is just really quick fast information yeah so. and you know immediate feedback there's no well i shouldn't say there's no politics i'm sure there must be some some sort of academic twitter politics out there but it doesn't matter oh, yeah. <laughs> um you can pick and choose who you want to listen to exactly i've and, and blocked people quite often yeah so. oh yeah um here here um, yes. but the, like the, what you said about being forgiving with, with late work, like, thank you. Cause I do yeah. the same thing. I, I tell them on the first day, like, I don't care about deadlines. I want you to turn in something good. And right. to a, to an individual, they think it's a trap <laughs> unless yeah. they've had oh, me before. Yeah. It's like, what's, what's going on with him? 
and I'll I'll let them write their test sometimes. Yeah. Like knowing full well that maybe because they wrote the test, they're not going to study for the test. But then even that they think is like, like they'll sit there and give me like that mean face, like yeah. <laughs> you're you're tricking us because everybody yeah. else has been so terrible with this stuff. I think my professors. Uh, I went to University of Miami for my master's and PhD, and my professors there had my music therapy professors um, were really strict with late work. I mean, it was grad school. I mean, I could understand, but mm-hmm. uh, Shannon Delatoire, who was a great mentor to me, her policy was any late work was automatically fifty percent off. And yeah, it was rough. And I, I'll tell you, I never turned in a single late assignment because I was so scared of that policy. Yeah. Um, you know, if something happened, like. You know, emergency, of course, she would mm-hmm. be very kind about it. But I used to have that same policy. And then I saw students who will just stop turning in assignments because they're like, there's no way I can even pass this class. So what's yep. the point? And I have to have deadlines, especially for clinical classes, because their assignments are often going into a medical file or, yeah. you know, you know, that kind of thing. But I think as far as things like research papers or projects, as long as no one else is relying on them, and um, there's not a hard deadline because, so, yeah, because someone else is relying on them. I can give a little um, leeway. And so what I think I'm going to do this semester is to give them seven days that they use in any configuration they want. So one assignment, seven days late, uh-huh. seven assignments, one day late, whatever they want to do with that. And I have a feeling many students will maybe take advantage of one or two days, mm-hmm. but I have a hypothesis that possibly nobody will use them all. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm sure they'll. I mean, even the overachievers won't. Yeah. You know, there's no way. Yeah. But I don't recall when I was an undergrad um, any kind of like really strict late policies. But I, my professors, I wasn't scared of them or anything, but I wanted them to really love me and, and like me. So I just wanted to be teacher's pet so bad that I think everything was in probably like a week early. <laughs> As you know, that's just how I was. <laughs> so. I can't relate to that. I wanted my professors to pass me, yeah. <laughs> but that was basically it. If they could pass me, but also <laughs> not know who I was ever, right. um, that would be ideal. If I just stay yeah. invisible and give me a B, I'm good. But that's not possible in music therapy because <laughs> you work with these students like in all whole four years, but... And I write, so I have to write letters of recommendation for every student that could, they all have to go off to a clinical internship. So um, I have to know who they are. And, and uh, I love writing the letters of rec, but sometimes I'm like, okay, this last semester was really rough for them. So I'm going to think back, you know, and I try to keep really good notes and just try yeah. to be realistic. But I, I really, yeah, I, I don't know if I ever wanted to disappear, probably in some of my gen eds. I wanted to just disappear because I just wanted to be practicing. Instead. So, yeah. Right out into the work. Who needs, yeah. who needs this math class? Oh man. I took so many stats classes at university of Miami that I wasn't that into when I took them. But once I got my job at Sam and I started doing my own research, I was like, I can do a CFA. I can do regression. Thank you for teaching me. Like it was amazing. So <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good a good point to end on that yeah. regression matters and music therapy is great <laughs> yes regression matters I don't know it's not a very popular statistical method in music therapy research yet but maybe that'll be my next your next breakthrough my next breakthrough <laughs> is to make some great model predict something amazing so <laughs> I have no doubt it'll happen okay. um, thank you for your time Carolyn 
Thank you so much. This was so fun.